Hey folks, thanks for joining us at Altitude. Stay ahead of the aircraft. It's one of the cardinal rules of aviation. You need to monitor your instruments so you know the current state of your aircraft while you think about what comes next in the flight plan. If you wait until you reach a waypoint where action is required before you start thinking about it, you begin to fall behind. Tasks pile up, effort and thought become divided and rushed. Then actions end up being executed too late or forgotten completely. And that, folks, is when very bad things can start happening. You prevent this by continually asking yourself, what's the current state of the aircraft? What's happening in the airspace around it? What's going to need to happen next? And what will I do when I get there? And then, finally, what can I do in advance to prepare to execute when the time comes? John Henderson's goal when it comes to installations, environment, and energy is to get the Air Force back ahead of the aircraft. The Assistant Secretary of the Air Force has some challenges, to say the least. Years of sequestration and underfunding have caused a backlog of maintenance projects, and natural disasters have damaged or decimated Air Force bases, diverting a large slice of his budget to recovery efforts. But armed with the infrastructure investment strategy, Henderson is leading the effort for the Air Force to utilize analytical tools to monitor the state of Air Force facilities, enabling situational awareness and predictive maintenance. This effort to fix before failure will support Air Force readiness and save money that can be used to fund projects that move the Air Force into the future. So let's get ahead of the aircraft with Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, John Henderson. I'm Joe Eddins, and you are at altitude. Okay, yeah. So the, uh, the importance of basing, what is it that the Air Force gets from having bases? So the Air Force is a little bit different than the other services that project power from their bases, but don't necessarily uh, have to recover and, and fight and generate from there. So if you, if you look at missions like our remotely piloted aircraft, uh, long-range bombers, global mobility, um, cyber, uh, missiles, uh, whatever that is, uh, when it comes time for us to um, to actually get into a high-end fight, uh, we're fighting from those bases. Uh, those bases will be targets for the enemy, those bases will have to be resilient, and those bases will run missions from right where they're at. Then we're not picking up and going anywhere. So if you look at it in that context, our bases are just a, just a little bit different uh, than others. And it's, uh, the military value of those bases isn't just uh, buildings and pavement. It's airspace, it's ranges, it's the level of community support we get uh, for those missions. It's a number of other things that really determine uh, what the military value, though sometimes it's just the geographic location is important to us. Um, so from our perspective, uh, those bases aren't something that we can invest in, you know, when, when conflict arises or we, we feel tensions come along. We have to keep those bases ready to, to fight tonight, so to speak. Um, and, uh, and that means that we have to continually invest in them as along the way. So, so um, the infrastructure investment strategy, people don't put strategies in place if there's not an issue to address. So what are the issues that need to be addressed in your view? Well, uh, first of all, um, because of sequestration and some other readiness priorities for the last six or eight years, uh, we've essentially, the Air Force has essentially underfunded our infrastructure sustainment and maintenance and recapitalization. Uh, that's resulted in about a $33 billion backlog in, in work that needs to be done. Uh, our commanders, our leaders, as you go out and visit bases, we're starting to see, we're starting to see what that looks like. We're starting to see roofs leak. 
we're starting to see um, uh, um, just foundational problems with some of our infrastructure. And at some point, especially in the Air Force, where we depend very heavily on facilities and advanced facilities and operations centers and mission control centers to get our mission done, at some point that starts impacting the, the mission. You know, whether it's a runway or if it's a flight line facility, a maintenance facility, if, if those aren't ready, then, our, then we're not mission ready. And so it's, it's a very quick linkage to draw that, um, uh, to develop a strategy and just balance out the, 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 the rest of those priorities, our, our mission requirements, our modernization priorities with infrastructure readiness because they're intrinsically linked. And so, so that's really the, the, the bigger problem we're trying to solve. And, and not just going in and saying, okay, we got $33 billion with the backlog, so now we got to spend three, $33 billion to buy it down. Uh, but a strategy to not only put a sustainable level of investment in place in the long term, this is a 30-year strategy, but also change our business processes so that we can invest at the lowest life cycle cost and just lower the overall cost of managing those facilities going forward so that we're not... Um, pulling money out of uh, readiness and modernization priorities also. Now, a lot of these facilities, matter of fact, I mean, they're World War II era. Uh, a lot of the shell buildings and things that are on there are certainly, nobody was thinking about the internet and interconnectivity and those kind of things. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, some of them, like you said, World War II facilities. Some of them are even earlier than that. We inherited some of our bases that were old Army posts. Moffett Air Force Base used to be an old cavalry fort. Um, which, and a, uh, you know, a great place for a cavalry fort is right there between two rivers where you can over, on the bluffs where you can overlook the rivers. Um, now it's an Air Force base. It's used for completely different purposes, so those, those bases have to be able to adapt uh, to the changing missions. Yeah. So some, and some of that infrastructure is uh, very old and um, costs a little more to maintain. Still useful, uh, but you have to continue to invest in it uh, if, if we're going to keep it around. So. so you already started down this, down this road, so let's talk about money. Uh, funding. This is this is why you got hired for the job to navigate these yeah. waters, and it can be difficult. Yeah, it is. So um, right now, so we took a look at what private industry and, and across the industry, what um, other companies, other organizations uh, put into facility investment. We've looked at some academic studies uh, of, of what the right level of annual investment is to maintain and sustain facilities going forward, and it comes out turns out that the low end of that, it's, it comes out to be about 2% to 4% of, of the total plant replacement value, we call it. So we call it a PRV. But that's, that's essentially what it would cost to replace the facilities. So the Air Force has about $262 billion worth of facilities. That would, that's what it would cost to replace uh, our 180 Air Force bases, so to speak. So if we take about 2% of that a year, uh, we think that's we think that's about right for us. Uh, industry invests about two to four percent on average, uh, and but the way for federal facilities and the way we use the facilities, we think the absolute minimum amount necessarily just to sustain is, is about two percent of that. And so uh, we worked with the senior leaders of the Air Force um, over the last year and said we think in order to uh, get a, a steady level, a steady predictable level of investment uh, for the next thirty years. Uh, that we would like to up our investment from where it currently is in FY19, which is something less than, a, uh, probably less than 1.5% of that, um, and get that up to, two point, to about 2% in the, um, the five-year plan. Um, and the idea that at the end of the year when there's fallout money that we'd also be prepared to take those additional monies and put that and add that to the 2% and get us to 2.3%, 2.4%. 
And that's a big deal. The Air Force senior leaders uh, agreed with that logic. Uh, they saw that if you're going to have a long-term sustainable strategy, uh, that we would that would be the right amount of investment. But what that resulted in between FY19 and FY20 is we ended up asking for about two billion dollars more in money, another or a 40 percent increase over last year's budget. So that's a significant increase. Uh, in the budget uh, for this and then we've got that we're working to have that programmed in the five years plan and we really need that uh, as a budget policy going forward for the Air Force to sustain that so um, so that means airmen and families uh, people who live out at the bases as soon as next year uh, could see some significant work going on in facilities that have otherwise been passed over or didn't prioritize hard enough high enough to get fixed so I've been to places where um, you know, active dining facilities, when it rains, the, the, the roof leaks. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's the stuff we had to put up with because we, didn't have, we couldn't afford to fix it. We couldn't get down far enough on the list to maintain those facilities. But now we should be able to reach a lot farther down on those lists to, to take care of those. The other part of the strategy, though, isn't just about money. Um, the other part of it is a changed business process. Uh, last year when I got here, we went to Congress and we defended something we called Worst First. And that's what you do when you have to do that. Uh, when you have limited funds uh, and you're going to put them towards your highest priority projects, the buildings that are in the absolute worst shape, um, because you have to. You don't have a choice. Uh, and that was essentially our strategy going in. It's been the strategy for six or seven years under constrained funds. So that means another way of saying that is we're going to wait until a facility uh, uh, degrades to the point towards the most expensive point, cost point in the life cycle to fix. It could cost five or seven, eight times as much to fix it at that point when it gets to its worst condition than it would if we recapitalized it at the, at the lowest cost point of the life cycle, which is somewhere about midlife. If you go in about midlife, you fix the roof, you get new uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, upgrade the electrical, that all costs money, but that investment will reset the life of that building for another you know, 40 or 50 years. Not to mention uh, in that first 50% technology may have changed, it may be time to refit and that's exactly right. Yeah, so it keeps the buildings modern, it keeps them safe, it keeps them up to code, um, and it's actually uh, better stewardship of the taxpayer money. So the big question is, like, okay, that all makes sense philo philosophically, but how do you know when you have almost uh, 98, I remember exactly the number of the facilities, it's like 98,000 facilities or however many facilities we have across the, across the Air Force, um, for each one of those facilities, all built at a different time, all in different environments, different types of facilities. So, what, so the question is, is, okay, what is the lowest cost point for every one of those facilities? And how do you take what is one big budget request, a, a, an appropriation for the Air Force, and make sure that it trickles down into 180 bases to get to the right building at the right time? And that's a huge change in business process for us. That requires that we have to have 100% inventory of the buildings. We've got to know what we have in the inventory. We've got to know what the current condition of that facility is. And then we've got to know uh, how to model it to determine when it gets to that point in the life cycle when it's, uh, when it's in the window for an optimum investment for, for recap. And so uh, the Air Force Civil Engineering Center over the last three or four years has, has worked to collect that data. That that's, means there's had to be an engineer eyes on every facility. It means we've had to have every one of them into the database. And they've created something called the Installation Health Assessment that models different types of facilities and their, and their on de, we call them degradation curves, but how they degrade over time. So they, they put every one of those buildings on the right curve and at the point of the curve it's at based on the age of the building and their assessment of it. 
and they've put this into the health assessment. So the health assessment is essentially a heat map. Every little pixel represents one facility, and we can tell whether it's red, amber, or green. We can tell exactly where it's at in the life cycle. Not only that, I, I know where it's at today. I can predict five years from now where that building will be in the life cycle, 10 years from now. I can predict when that facility will be ready for a recap. We'll generally know how much money that's going to require. We can essentially lay out our financial needs for the next 30 years using a tool like that as long as we've got a good authoritative database with, that, that AFCEC's been putting together. And that's really the power behind the strategy because if I do that um, and I'm saving uh, five to seven times the amount of money on, on, on infrastructure upgrades and investments, um, the increased funding is part of it, but where we're really saving money is by saving five to seven times the amount of money. When, when you're talking about uh, you know, when you're talking about billions of dollars of infrastructure investment over 30 years, and the fact that we're saving that order of magnitude, this is a huge savings. So in addition to saving the money, this gives us more money to do these smaller projects along the way, that the proactive investments along the way. It allows us to get after the energy resiliency projects we talk about. Energy resilience for us is just making sure that we have backup power or sometimes a, an alternate source of power in case the grid grid goes out. Uh, helps us to cyber secure our facilities, helps us get into other, these other proactive projects. Instead of just being in a worst first triage mode all the time on fixing stuff um, and reacting to it, uh, we're getting ahead of the power curve. So in other words, if you're not paying five to seven times the amount by fixing something's worst first, I can do five to seven times the number of projects so I can do more work. Um, and, and that's the power behind it. It's that change business process in addition to the increased funding, the increased funding gives us the decision space. We still have to take care of the worst first, I mean, those, those facilities that are in worst condition. Um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, we still need the decision space to start proactively investing and get ahead of it because that keeps those facilities from ever getting into kind of this red failed status. And this, this feels like a paradigm too, that as we move forward with technology, you're talking about this is based on engineers' eyes on, but being with the Army Corps of Engineers, you understand the power of sensors and dams and things like that. Right. Is there, are we looking towards a future where AI sensors are basically keeping an eye on everything all the time? There, there is uh, a lot of room for technological advances here. Uh, first of all, first of all, the um, I would just say on the on, on the other piece of the money savings, the worst first, the, the other part of the strategy that helps us out is, is divesting uh, maybe five percent of the worst part of our facilities. Instead of just, instead of putting all that money in to take a failed facility, just just make the decision that we don't need it, consolidate that function into existing facilities, and then just just demo it and save the money altogether, and then save the future O&M costs. With regard to technology, um, there's a lot of great technologies out there in building management systems that's being used in, in the private sector that was, we could certainly leverage. If I could throw a couple of scenarios out there, uh, imagine, and, and they, this, this, these technologies exist. So imagine uh, in a new facility we have these building management systems where you can kind of monitor how the building's doing on any given day. You've got a lot of sensors in the HVAC systems and the lighting. Um, Managing, can manage air quality, um, manages security, and you can kind of have this all on a console laid out in front of you. But um, think of a facility that, uh, let's just say, is, uh, could be resilient to a, a cyber attack or some type of intrusion attack on the power source coming in, and the sensors sense it and can automatically um, block it or uh, counterattack uh, automatically. Because you're talking about, if you, if you look at the 
let's, let's just say, let's just use a base defense scenario. Let's say it's an expeditionary base and it's uh, in the, you know, in one of our combat zones. So let's say you're going to defend against a missile attack. Let's say we know, kind of know how to defend against a missile attack now. We've got the technologies to do that. But let's say um, 20 years from now, uh, maybe one of those attacks, maybe, could, maybe the one of those attacks, whether it's a missile attack or a cyber attack, maybe it can come uh, in, the, in an overwhelming uh, number of ways, like let's say a thousand missiles coming at the base. How do you defend against a thousand missiles? How do you defend against a thousand cyber attacks that's coming in and just uh, prodding your network? Maybe a thousand cyber attacks a second, you know, faster than uh, humans can react to this. Uh, in those types of s situations where you're talking about energy resiliency or defending the base, uh, there's certainly room for sensors, there's certainly rooms for machine learning and automated uh, intelligence that can, that can sense and sometimes even react and, and help with the decision making and do it faster than, than humans can mechanically do that uh, because uh, we have the technologies that can do these types of things. So um, from a building maintenance point of view, think of, think of uh, air conditioner, you know, these great big uh, heating and ventilation systems that we have on server rooms or data centers and so these take a huge amount of air conditioning and if you think about, uh, uh, we, we send people around to, to inspect these things and do periodic maintenance on these things, but it's really hard for a human technician to detect when the pulley's about ready to go out, right? Um, but sometimes, so that goes undetected. We know when the pulley fails, when it fails, the whole air conditioning system fails. Sometimes the failure of that air conditioning system might cause problems to the data center or cause problems to the rest of the building or might cause leaks. Might, or maybe it just doesn't run optimally for a couple of years and it causes mold inside the ductwork. Whatever that problem was, sometimes it's, those aren't perceivable problems from a human technician. A building automated system can check the humidity and that the air that's coming out of there. Uh, they, can, they can detect maybe extra friction on a fan belt or a pulley and we can go in and change that thing before it breaks and causes damage to some other part of the building. Um, so it's just like aircraft, with aircraft right. moving towards predictive maintenance. I, I, I make that parallel quite a bit. It's predictive maintenance. And why do I got to wait for the pulley to break? If I know through predictive maintenance that those pulleys last 10,000 hours or whatever it would be, um, and they generally had to be replaced at 10,000 hours, then why do I have to wait for it to break? At 10,000 hours, we automatically order the pulley and we go in and we fix it on our terms on a scheduled maintenance call as opposed to doing it unscheduled and then fixing all the collateral damage that came from that one little $5 pulley that broke and caused tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage. I make the same analogy for roofs. Uh, if we could just fix the leak in the roof when we know when the first time we perceive a leak as opposed to waiting three or four years to go through this contracting process and, and uh, wait for it to rack and stack, by that time the roof's been leaking for five years and we've got mold and water damage and, and damage to the walls and damage to the systems in the buildings. So, you know, if we, if we could just keep the, if we could just fix the roofs and the HVACs, we'd take care of a huge part of our backlog maintenance problems and the, and the cost of the growth. If we could fix them proactively, put the roof on before we know, you know, if, it, if the roof's got 20 years on it and we know those types of roofs need to be changed at 20 years, then, then let's go change the roof. Uh, we don't need for it to uh, wait for it to leak and then cause a bunch of damage to the rest of the building. So those are just, those are just smart, proactive ways that um, the rest of the world manages the, uh, their facilities. There's no reason why the Air Force shouldn't be doing that too, just uh, leveraging what its best practices, le leveraging advanced technologies uh, to help us get after and manage facilities so we're not running up the cost uh, for our taxpayers. So. so very obviously that segues into the horrible damage that happened at Tyndall 
right. with Hurricane Michael. I mean, it was basically a slate wiper. Um, right. And it, with this comes an opportunity with all of the talk of the base of the future and all of these technologies being able to be applied. Um, and then under the funding uh, cage that yeah. you have to wrestle in, uh, <laughs> maybe let's talk about that. Is it, is it possible? Could it happen all at once? Could it just be incremental things we can try? Is this going to be a priority to try and make Tyndall the base of the future off the drawing board and actually become a reality? Right, so um, there's a lot of things out there for uh, the base of the future and city of the future. There's just a lot of great technologies out there. I think the big question we're wrestling with right now is what does the Air Force need in a base of the future? There's a lot of things we could do. There's a lot of things we could experiment with. Um, but in this case, again, mostly out of stewardship for taxpayer dollars and for focusing on, in this case, what a fifth generation fighter base needs. We're, we're trying to focus on what are the mission requirements. And, and what of those technologies that are out there could enhance that. So w we are doing exactly that. In the case of Tyndall, where we have this uh, opportunity, uh, birthed by tragedy, but this opportunity where we're gonna go back and rebuild almost every facility on the base, or at least do significant upgrades to the ones that we could save, um, it's a great opportunity to, to update the structure of the building to meet, um, to meet kind of updated codes. Some of those facilities are uh, World War II era facilities, right? So. Uh, and upgrade the resiliency to uh, weather threats, and we're looking at maybe even building to a Miami-Dade type of code as opposed to what the code is up in the panhandle. Um, going in there and ensuring that, the, that the, the energy system, the energy distribution system's uh, resilient uh, for those types of storms and those types of threats in that area. And then just ensuring that we have up-to-date modern facilities that, that are gonna support a, a fifth generation uh, type of aircraft. You know, we're proposing to put three squadrons of F-35s in there. And so just ensuring that those facilities have uh, the comms links, uh, the, the bandwidth, the, um, uh, the right hangers, the, the just the, the and, and are situated in an optimum way for a fifth generation fighter base. That, that base was built for as a World War II, um, as a World War II base and things have changed over the years. And so it's given us an opportunity to rethink how the flight line's laid out. It's given us an opportunity to think where our mission support and community support lay out. Um, it's given us an opportunity to look at uh, uh, setting those things up where people can maybe walk to work as opposed to drive to work. Um, and then of course, uh, some of these building technologies we just discussed. It's an opportunity uh, to go ahead and, and use as a pilot where we can, uh, since we're going to end up building so many, rebuilding so many facilities to go ahead and implement a, a system like this on a, on a base-wide where we can have, instead of a building monitoring system, we can have a base-wide monitoring system that can monitor every building on base, uh, kind of see the condition status and get after this proactive maintenance because it's just way cheaper to, to fix it um, in advance of things breaking. So the idea is if we get a pilot like this started on an entire base, what, and what keeps us from being able to do this, you know, franchise something that works and do it on several bases where uh, at some point we could have an enterprise-wide understanding of uh, where our maintenance money is going, uh, what needs to be fixed, what parts need to be ordered, and, and, you know, then it starts looking like your aircraft maintenance, you know, your predictive maintenance, things that we're doing on the aircraft, so. And in fact, I guess the success of the Air Force Pitch Day up in New York uh, 
there, we're talking about putting together a base of the future pitch day, which I would suppose would apply directly to the rebuild of Tyndall. Yeah, so we've done, in addition to that, so you're right, uh, we, think there's, uh, we think there's room for an Air Force pitch day in there just because of some of the advanced technologies and different ways of managing installations. We've done two industry days at Tyndall, which essentially have resulted in a pitch day. We asked for white papers back from industry on, on ideas about how they would build it or how they would manage the rebuild of it. Uh, soliciting ideas for these new technologies that, uh, uh, for, for managing buildings and infrastructure and bases. So, and that was tremendously successful. In both cases, uh, we completely sold out, I would say sold out, but we completely filled up the uh, room with uh, our industry partners. A lot of interest there, and we got a lot of great ideas and white papers back from that. So, um, yes, yeah, so that was a successful, in my, my mind, it was a very successful interaction with industry. And now we've used that to inform. Uh, what is our draft master plan for Tyndall, and, and we're starting to build projects uh, on that. So, so um, and I guess obviously this goes directly to agile acquisition methods, uh, DevOps, yeah. with everything being so software dependent. Uh, I assume this is something you're looking at also. Absolutely. Um, so, with um, with regard to the infrastructure, one of the reforms that's going on in the Department of Defense is this idea called category management and acquisition. That's probably the one that applies most uh, to us. So in other words, if I know out of 98 or 99,000 different facilities that we have across the, the United States that every year I'm going to have to buy a certain number of roof replacements. And we just know that. So whatever that is, one or two percent of those, if I got to buy uh, 2,000 or 3,000 roof replacement or roof repairs, then why am I going to go through the acquisition process, 2,000 or three, especially the federal acquisition process? So uh, why not use uh, category management, which is essentially leveraging a scale of economies, putting re regional roofing contracts on where we, we hire one group of contractors to include small business that would come in and they'd be hired to repair roofs maybe for an entire region of, of bases for us. Um, it helps drive the cost down. Uh, gives uh, a group of contractors who are really good at it an opportunity to work on several bases so we're not starting over with each one. Um, and it uh, keeps our acquisition team from having to do the acquisition process that many times. You do one larger acquisition that meets all the requirements and then um, we spread that out across the enterprise. Maybe we do it in regions. You can do that. We're doing that on several categories of of infrastructure acquisition. And so that, that's, um, that's a change uh, uh, for us, and we think that's a great way, again, to leverage economies of scale and uh, expedite the acquisition process a little bit. The other thing in acquisition is making sure that we have the contract tools in place to handle year-end fallout. This is another part of the strategy. Um, if we program and budget to 2% of the plant, re plant replacement value, uh, then we'd also like to be well postured at the end of the year. Uh, these O&M operations and maintenance funds are kind of fungible. So if the ones that aren't spent at the end of the year, if, if we have projects on the shelf that are ready to go where we have contracts ready to sign and they're in line with the strategy already, then we take that money and we put it towards uh, things that we really need. We put it towards priority projects as opposed to waiting until the end of the year and then just spending the money on whatever we're able to buy before the end of the year. Um, so that's another big piece of the acquisition part for us. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, that's okay. Uh, just kind of reminds me of being up at pitch day, and we sat down with General Holt. Yeah. And and I, 
you know, I asked him about all this stuff, and he says, I've been waiting for this my entire career. Yep. He says, they open the window, I'm driving a truck through it while I can. <laughs> yep. So it's, 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 a, it's, a similar, it's a similar opportunity for the infrastructure. We have uh, uh, the right group of leaders here in the Air Force right now that see the value, see the intrinsic link between infrastructure readiness, uh, our training readiness, our personnel readiness, our equipment readiness. Um, and it, this is not a money grab. Uh, this is saying there's, there, but there is a, a basic uh, industry accepted level of investment that we have to continue to put into our uh, facilities on the auspices that we're going to manage that money well, manage it in the most optimum way possible, not to divert from the rest of the readiness. This should, this should almost be invisible uh, to the rest of the Air Force. This should be something that quietly goes on in the background. The facilities are just ready to go when we need them. It's a supporting effort. Uh, and, but, um, but it was an agreement among the, the uh, senior leaders to say, hey, this is really important. Uh, when my dining facilities leak, uh, our airmen are not happy. Uh, when, um, when we have uh, control centers and computer rooms and intelligence, you know, intel facilities where the roof is leaking or there's something wrong with the facility and they got to pick up and move, we're disrupting a mission because the facility isn't ready. And so we're seeing a lot of this across the Air Force and uh, our senior leaders have, uh, have bought into the strategy and said, hey, uh, we're willing to work together on this, on, on the resourcing with it, on, on uh, measuring ourselves, you know, uh, and holding ourselves accountable to ensuring that we've got the foundational infrastructure we need to do our mission. We've certainly been talking about a lot of looking over the horizon and, and planning for allocations yeah. of funds and projects, and obviously very diligent in that regard, but when something like Tendo went off, it happens back to back, it must feel like you're doing static analysis as far right. as making the money work. It's, so FY19 has been a tough year. It, it, was already a, uh, it was already an underfunded year from the get-go. I mean, we went into the year underfunded, and then we've just had um, a number of unforeseen events that have, have really pulled on the budget. Um, since they're O&M funds, they're fungible. This is, this, so this is probably some of our biggest funding hurdles is the fact that uh, when, when there's bills to pay um, in any given year, even if we get the money, that money is susceptible to be moved. Even when we're programming and we're trying to balance inside the total obligation authority, there's always this balance between modernization and training and readiness and, and facilities. And so um, this, is, this is a discussion about how we uh, balance these things out. So they're always susceptible uh, to be moved. And that's, that's probably one of the big things that we're uh, working hard to, to codify in Air Force budget policy to ensure that this is, these do get programmed out at the, at the right level. And then in the year of execution, just making sure that uh, we find the right balance between the uh, priorities and we can adapt to uh, changes. You know, um, if this, I mean, this here is a prime example. Whatever we thought we were going to spend our money on in facilities in FY19, a huge part of that now has gone to Tyndall. There's more going to, to Offutt Air Force Base Recovery right now. Um, you know, and subject to approval of a, a supplemental fund funding. I mean, those are one-year funds, so they're just uh, they're just gone. Uh, then, and all this discussion about uh, what we asked for in FY20 um, is impacted by leftover backlog requirements from FY19 that we never got to. And so while it was nice to budget, you get a 40% increase in your budget in FY20 without a supplemental, essentially the requirements didn't go away, right? We just built the backlog bigger and we have more stuff to go and address now. So, um, And so if you, if you had to explain it to a staffer on the Hill or somebody interagency-wise, beyond the economic impact to yeah. the panhandle, which I think everybody understands that communities around bases are very dependent uh, upon their success. But 
Why is Tyndall so important to the Air Force? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. I'll go back to, you know, what's the military value of, the, of our bases? It's not just buildings and infrastructure. If it, was just, if it was just buildings and pavement, we could pick that mission up and put it anywhere. Um, but the geographic location there, you know, uh, uh, right next to uh, one, of our, one of our national treasures for a range there, the Eglin Test and Training Range, uh, they have essentially, uh, as you fly off the panhandle of Florida there by Tyndall Air Force Base, they've got training space almost all the way down to Key West um, off the shore of Florida. It's one of the, uh, I said airspace has a lot of military value. It's one of the only places in the nation, if not the only place in the nation, where we've got approved airspace where we can fly these uh, drones, unmanned drones, like F-16 sized, full-sized drones off the runway. Uh, and then right out over the water. They don't have to fly through FAA airspace. They don't have to fly over populated areas. Uh, these, this, this is an inherently dangerous mission where we're going down and doing kind of uh, airplane on airplane training. Um, and we shoot the drones down, okay? And sometimes, sometimes the drones don't work right, so we blow them up. Uh, you know, so for, wh for whatever that is, it's, it's inherently dangerous work. So it, for us to be able to secure airspace to do those types of things is nearly impossible. So it's not like I can just pick that mission up and go somewhere else. We get this incredible community support uh, outside of uh, Panama City and uh, um, at Tyndall Air Force Base. And that's, that's a national treasure. That has military value in and of itself. We have some communities um, the, where the communities have come online and uh, uh, don't want the Air Force mission there. Right? And so that's really hard to operate in communities where we don't get that kind of support and there isn't some kind of a, um, a give and take and, and some, some teamwork there. If we we're constantly fighting with the community we're in, then that's, that's really a distraction with the mission. So, you know, community support, ranges, uh, the access to world-class ranges, um, the access to, you know, very unique uh, airspace. Um, and with all that, with that network of bases uh, down along the Florida coast with Eglund and Hurlburt, and McDill and Tyndall, we bring in fighters from all over the world and they do these checkered flag exercises because um, they can all leave from different bases and go back to different bases and then go out and run exercises uh, all, all linked to a common range there. So it's, uh, very, so it's very important to international partnerships and also total force exercises, I would imagine. Absolutely, to have that kind of capacity there. So from a strategic, you know, from a strategic capital infrastructure point of view, uh, Tyndall Air Force Base is extremely important to the Air Force. So all of this work that needs to be done takes talent. It takes, uh, it takes individuals who know how to get these things done. Where do we stand on Manning? Where do we stand on the education in the civil engineering slash uh, 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 construction areas? Yeah, you know, when we were putting this strategy together, we realized that we, have, uh, we identified a gap here. Most of it's in the form of capacity. Uh, we've got a tremendous Air Force civil engineering um, uh, cohort, a group, um, essentially coming through, but there's not enough of them. Uh, over the years, uh, you know, with, with the personnel cuts that have happened in the Air Force, some of these mission uh, support AFFCs have taken a larger cut than most, and so, um, so when it comes time to surge on these big missions that come up, like the reconstruction of Tyndall, or the, the, amount, of, the amount of construction we're putting in overseas where it takes um, active duty airmen engineers to go do that type of work, we find ourselves uh, kind of at a lack of capacity. And as we talked about earlier, what this really manifests itself is, is a large, a huge increase in the number of projects, either through increased funding or because we're funding smaller projects sooner in the life cycle. 
So with, and so if you take the increase of money and then the, the, uh, the number of smaller projects, then you get almost an exponential increase in the number of projects overall, which takes engineers and designers and cost estimators and people to oversee the construction. Um, so the number of things we're looking at. We've, uh, our, our estimates right now show that we're probably um, 3,300 or 3,500 uh, full-time equivalent employees short uh, to be able to, to manage this program. So as the program ramps up, over time, we'll, there's a number of ways that we can feel that. There's, there's some inherently governmental uh, functions in there that we'll have to look at uh, increasing our, our government civilian piece. Uh, there's some inherently military stuff there that uh, to ensure we're keeping a cadre of folks on the military warfighting engineering requirements. So some of those would have to be military plus ups. And then some of it we can do with, with contractors and architectural engineering firms and, and bringing in construction you know, with our industry partners. So. Uh, the full-time equivalence is really a combination of all those, um, but, but it is a little bit different way of managing our business. The, the Air Force Institute of Technology does a great job training our engineers. They have a lot of programs specifically tailored uh, to help our engineers to understand, to, to teach our engineers how to run bases, how to run cities. Um, so part of that is working with them to ensure that our, as our engineers come up through their career fields, they understand what this strategy is. And, it, and we're not calling it something new or different. It's an, not an installation investment strategy. It's just Air Force policy. This is how we manage infrastructure, period. And so that's kind of the big, next big step for us is to inculcate this into Air Force policy, into Air Force uh, training uh, for our engineers and our acquisition folks, and to ensure that this becomes a steady state, not some special strategy that has a separate document, but um, actually just becomes Air Force policy and uh, something that people don't have to think about too much because it's happening automatically in a good way. So we've talked a lot about continental United States. But the Arctic presents its own challenges. It where, where are we there? So we're putting a lot of investment in Alaska right now with the F-35 bed downs. Um, uh, doing a lot of work um, up at Ielsen right now with the community on uh, ensuring that that uh, infrastructure is resilient to a number of different threats, right? So they're, they're a little bit closer uh, to some of our primary competitors, uh, for one, just because of the shape of the earth. To uh, the weather threat and the tidal threats and the, uh, the natural threats in Alaska are, are quite a bit different too. So that just requires us building to a different uh, facility code and, um, and ensuring that those, uh, those facilities are resilient to permafrost or permafrost melt as it may be um, and uh, some of those things. And finally, you know, we have a, a pretty limited number of energy sources in Alaska. It's, it's, you know, in the United States we've got these interconnected major power grids where sometimes we can tap into different sources or we've got big wind farms that we can tie into alternate sources of energy and some of that in Alaska is just, is just frankly pretty limited. So some of the work that we are doing in Alaska is trying to ensure that there's, there's some major source of alternative power uh, up there uh, for those bases because they are so strategically important. It's another, that's another example where our base is the geographic location on the face of the earth is extremely important, you know, strategically significant. If it was just buildings and pavement, uh, we could put that mission anywhere. But uh, there's, there's no place like Alaska with regard, you know, you're halfway across the Pacific Ocean in a lot of ways, and you're halfway, you're almost all the way into the Arctic, and, um, and those, those two areas on the planet are going to be uh, strategically important as and, we go and forward. And certainly the Air Force with, you know, the, the sea ice melting away and new sh shipping lanes and yeah. areas of potential conflict, I would imagine the Air Force is going to be a big part of 
playing into that. We project it's going to be a huge part of all that. So yeah, those, those bases are extremely important. So the resiliency of those bases and the long-term endurance of those bases is, is of strategic importance to the Air Force. I think we've brushed past a lot of things, but yeah. you know, I tried to do my homework. What, what didn't I ask that I should have asked? What, what do you want to get out um, there? I think we were able to talk about it. The, uh, I, think the, I think the big message for us right now is the, is the impacts to the Air Force uh, without supplemental funding. Um, right now we've put probably 61 projects on hold, FY19 projects that really needed to be done. They were in that worst first category, so not doing those projects um, is impacting readiness now. Uh, they're spread across 18 states, so in a lot of cases those were projects that were ready to fund, so there was, there was already commitments to contractors made to uh, they maybe already put in the bids for it, we just hadn't announced them or funded them yet. So there was work that was anticipated to be ready to go. There's facilities that need to be fixed. A lot of that money was diverted uh, to the Tyndall and Offit recoveries. Uh, on, the, on the pretense that, uh, that Congress has always funded supplementals and, and other disasters. So um, that's a big deal for us right now. Um, there's other bills in FY19 that, that have gone unpaid, and that's part of that $1.2 billion supplemental. So, um, that's, a, that's a big deal for us uh, going forward. And um, anyway, we're, we'll continue working with Congress to see if we can get that across the finish line. So um, anyway. The last thing I wanted to ask, and we've been asking this of all of our senior leader interviews, I hopefully they prepared you for this, is you know, the chief of staff talks about uh, the importance of failing forward, not just yeah. in the acquisition and, and DevOps sense of failing at the beginning saves you money instead of going 10 years and then finding out you did the wrong thing. Right. But uh, also in, in career lives, you know, that, you know, learning how to turn a failure into something positive. Is there something in your career that would be <laughs> emblematic of that that you could share with us? Almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so there's, there's, there's lots of examples. I, I was prepped for the question, but uh, um, I, you know, I, I, could give, I can give uh, an Army example and an Air Force example if we got a few minutes slow. Um, in, in the Army, we, uh, uh, I was an operations officer. Uh, we went into an area outside of Tikrit where we were going to go in and uh, our mission was to secure a, a certain battle space, so inside of the base and then the area outside of the base. And we fell, on the, we fell in on the mission of the, the folks before us, which, which was an infantry unit out of the 101st Airborne. And we went in for the first 90 days. And we were just not getting the effects uh, that we thought we were. The, the number of attacks on the base were increasing, not decreasing. We should have been going the other way. Um, we, we had soldiers who were wounded in action. We had one that was killed in action. We had several of our vehicles were blown up with IEDs. And so we were just, we were just really struggling uh, to implement this plan that we had inherited. Um, and at some point in there, we just, we just had, to, we had to stop and reset and say, uh, not, that, not that it's failed, but what we're doing is not working. Um, and so we took some time to listen. You do that as a team sometimes. We do the AARs. Uh, we went and listened to the, local, um, to the local leaders, the imams. We listened to the local populace. Uh, uh, in a few of the IED emplacers that we captured, we decided to sit down and listen to uh, uh, get some intelligence from them. And we just come to the conclusion that we were being attacked by the populace that we were trying to build bridges with. Um, and get along with. And so instead of having this very kinetic um, type of approach, uh, we went and we, because, you know, say, uh, so one of our IED emplacers said, he said, I don't have anything against the United States. I don't want to attack soldiers, but this guy, you know, from Al Qaeda or whoever paid me 40 bucks to go dig a hole in the side of the road. I need to feed my family. I don't care whether you're here or not, but 
there's been no job since you've been here. I'd just really like to feed my family. And every time you guys come out and shoot one of us who's digging a hole on the side of the road, it makes the rest of us mad. So there was just this epiphany. And so we went back and we put together a, essentially a jobs program. We needed to build T-walls. We hired a local contractor to do it. We just said in the, in the contract that you have to hire local labor. And we decided to put every military-aged male in anywhere in the five villages around us to work building T-walls. And if they weren't available for that, we were going to teach them how to, we're going to bring them in and do a skills training and teach them how to be generator mechanics and carpenters and plumbers and masons. And we put a job skill. And for a very low investment, and then they can start replacing some of the higher paid American contractors that we were doing. We needed to phase out anyway. That was called uh, the Iraqi Business Industrial Zone. The attacks stopped immediately. We went from something like 40 significant activities a week to zero, and it stayed at zero. Uh, two years later, we, we, we checked on this same area again, and it, it never came back because we built the relationship with the community. Um, I just, when I was thinking about the question, I thought that was one of our that was one of our best fail-forwards that I can think of because it had a profound impact and it actually ended up getting franchised across other parts of Iraq. Um, in the Air Force, we're going through a little bit of a fail-forward right now with our uh, discussion on privatized housing. And in that particular case, whether whatever body of facts that we use, uh, in essence, uh, the Air Force you know, has brought to our attention that in some cases in some of our bases that uh, we were losing the trust of our airmen. Um, uh, that our uh, housing management prob uh, programs could be taking care of some of our uh, uh, industry partners could be doing a better job, or maybe they weren't treating airmen and families the way they should have. For the most cars across the airports, the, the, uh, mil the privatized housing has been a, a net plus. We've improved overall if you look across the enterprise. Um, where we were losing is on these in individual transactions with our airmen and their families where maybe they weren't as well taken care of as they should have or uh, they felt um, like they didn't have anywhere to go when they're having problems with their housing. And when we went and looked at that, we saw that some of the connective tissue between what was housing management and the chain of command um, had eroded in some cases. And so we've been called to the carpet by Congress. Um, uh, a lot of stuff out in the press, and it was just this opportunity, as, as Chief Goldfein would say, for us, you know, and every challenge is an opportunity. So, you know what, let's go take a hard look at ourselves. And while housing has improved over the years, and, and for the most part across the Air Force, it's being managed pretty well, let's go in and have the commanders take a deep dive. Uh, let's go talk to our airmen and their families about the condition, and let's go fix what we can, and let's take it to the next level and make it even better. Um, and so, taking what was is inherently a, a bad situation, um, a lot of bad media, and going in and identifying exactly what the problem is and then taking responsive, responsible actions going forward once we have a good idea of what the problem really is, um, is, is going to be inherently good for our families, inherently good for the Air Force uh, with regard to housing, and then inherently good in helping to rebuild the trust between the chain of command and our airmen and families who live in, in, in these houses. So. Um, that's an example right now where we're in the, in the course of failing forward, I would, I would put that. So, um, and I've heard the chief kind of use housing as an example every once in a while as an opportunity to, as an opportunity to be better. And so um, um, that was, uh, anyway, that's been, that's been quite a process so far and we're going we're gonna to continue. We've got a long ways to go on the housing piece of it, but um, we're going we're gonna to have a better outcome in the end, I think. Great. Thank you so much for your time, yeah, sir. Thanks. I appreciate it very much. Yep. Thank you. I appreciate it.
And that's going to do it for this episode of At Altitude. My thanks to Assistant Secretary John Henderson and all those designing, building, and maintaining facilities that enable the Air Force to project its power. The At Altitude podcast is a production of Airman Magazine at Defense Media Activity at Fort Meade, Maryland. Please check out the rest of our content at the Airman website, airman.dodlive.mil, or search for us on iTunes, Vimeo, YouTube, Facebook, and Flickr. Thanks for listening. Until next time.